1: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's a piece I hope you'll enjoy from my friend, Dennis Prager. Ben Shapiro needs no introduction. He's in that rarefied uh, category. But for those of you who don't know, he's editor of The Daily Wire, which is worthy of your visit every single day. I mean, it; it's one of the things that I do visit every day. He's host of the Ben Shapiro podcast, and he has his own radio show. And his new book is, and it's number one Amazon bestseller, The Right Side of History. And it's uh, New York Times. Oh, boy, you're on New York Times. That's cool. Now, you never know with the New York Times, Ben.
2: Oh, yes. No, we were were real happy that they weren't able to somehow prevent us from being number one for for a week. At least we had knocked Michelle Obama's book down to number two. So that's kind of neat.
1: For that alone, you have a special place in the hereafter.
2: <laughs> well, I haven't i haven't read her book, so honestly, maybe it's great. But it was nice to, at least for a week, be able to say that we outsold Michelle Obama.
1: You know what? I want to read it. Uh, it's funny because I'm now reading Betty Friedan's um, The Feminine Mystique. I finally decided. Did, have you ever read that?
2: uh i've I've read large sections of it i refer to it actually in this book but yeah it is not it is not a good book that's
1: correct in fact i I have a sense that if you read the introduction you've really read the book but anyway i want to get to your book and, and it's very it's a very important book so i always ask authors state concisely your thesis the right side of history
2: So the the thesis is basically that we live in the most prosperous, freest time in world history, and yet we are deeply unhappy. And the reason that we're deeply unhappy is because we have failed to recognize the fundamental bases of Western civilization. We look at our own civilization, and we are critical of the stuff that brought us together. We want to take all of the benefits without recognizing that we are standing on some pretty rooted foundations. And when we fail to recognize that, we start chipping away at the very foundations, and then the civilization runs into danger of crumbling.
1: God, is that ever true? The, the, Do you ever hear of the cut flower ethics uh, thing? That you know, we we cut uh, the ethical flowers out of the soil that nurtured them and think they'll still live.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. I, mean, I talk about exactly that sort of that that sort of phenomenon in the book. This idea that essentially the, the metaphor that I use is I say that that America, in particular, but Western civilization more broadly, is built. On a suspension bridge, and one end of the suspension bridge, one of the pillars of the suspension bridge, is Jerusalem, meaning Judeo-Christian ethics and revelation. And on the other end of the suspension bridge is Greek reason, the use of of reason and teleology, meaning purpose-driven thinking, in order to in order to moderate the dictates of any revelation system. And in that, in the middle of that bridge is where civilization is built. You take away reason, and you end up with theocracy. You take away Judeo-Christian values, and you end up with with secular fascism, in many cases, or communism, or other forms of, of human degradation, you, you need both of those pillars there, and they are living in constant tension with one another, and if we fail to understand either of the pillars, or if we tear down one in the name of the other, both end up crumbling so does the civilization.
1: It's so true and so important, and I'm so glad that your book is doing well. Obviously, the hope is that the vast majority of people who buy it will read it, which I actually think in your case will happen. What is the – has the book been – this would interest me. Has the book been reviewed
2: in any place like the New York Times? So the New York Times did review it. Uh, There was a a guy from Brookings Institute who reviewed it. And it wasn't really a review as much as a dismissal. So uh, it's exactly what you would expect from the New York Times. The person just said he traces a lot of philosophy in a very short period of time, and then he makes judgments about those philosophies. And also, I don't like him. That that was. I, I wish I could say that the review were more than that, but it it's not more than that. I mean, now that, that the review was essentially, I don't like Shapiro. Therefore, his book is bad. He even says that the the argument I'm making has a venerable long tradition. He says that the argument that I'm making, he has sympathies to, but he doesn't like me personally. So therefore, bad book. Uh, so that that was the New York Times review. I, I thought that the best critical review was from Colette, which is which is more of a a heterodox secularist kind of publication, and that. That publication gave sort of the secular humanist review, which was to suggest that religion has been a force that works against human knowledge and, and scientific reason, sort of the Sam Harris case. Um, I, I take on a lot of those arguments in the book, so I don't think that that review this positively. That somehow disproves the, the main points of the book. But if you want to read sort of both sides of the argument, I thought that that review was a good way to read the argument against my book. And then you read my book, and I think it, it's a pretty good, well rounded view of the issue.
1: One of the reasons I'm so happy for its success is I suspect a great number of the readers are young. Ben, I have to tell you, there is a certain revelation that is always available when you read the one star reviews. I don't know if you caught your one star reviews. You you have ninety uh eighty-nine percent five star as far as I'm concerned, it should be a hundred percent. But uh the anger, which of course I'm I'm you know obviously a recipient of too, that we believe, not in the, the- theological sense, but in the logical sense, that Jerusalem, as it were, that the Judeo-Christian aspect is as necessary as the reason aspect drives a lot of college graduates crazy. Is that fair to say?
2: Oh, absolutely. There's a a belief among college grads particularly that pure reason somehow is going to get you to universal human rights, individual human dignity, democracy, free markets. And no. (laughs) Yes, there is no. That's just not true. And the 20th century and the 19th century proved that pretty well one of the things that i talk about at length in the book is the difference between the scottish american british enlightenment and the french enlightenment and the german enlightenment the the, the disconnect between judeo christian values and the continental european enlightenment leads to some incredibly dark places from the french revolution through the communist through the communist revolution in in russia and and through nazi germany and the Anglo-American Scottish Enlightenment, which recognizes the Burkean aspects of maintaining the Judeo-Christian value system that leads to freedom and individual rights and democracy. And you have to connect those two fundamental views that are embedded in human nature and that historically have been tied to Judeo-Christian value systems. I also make the argument that a lot of the secular humanists who talk about human flourishing are actually rooting their value systems in Judeo-Christian values without even noticing it. They sort of suggest they come to this stuff a priori. They just come to it because they thought it out themselves. But the reality is you can think yourself into virtually any position. There are certain fundamental assumptions that you have to make about the nature of humanity that we are of value. is is a pretty basic assumption embedded in Genesis that we're each made in God's image, the most important single sentence in the history of humanity. Without that basis, how do you even begin to build a civilization? Without the idea that you're in control of your own actions, that you have free will to choose to do good or choose to do evil. And that personal responsibility exists. How, do you, how exactly do you create a civilization without the idea that the world was created by a logical mind in orderly fashion and that our minds mirror that mind to the extent that we can discover the workings of the universe? How do you create science without that? I mean, that's an Aristotelian idea. That's not even a biblical idea. So these fundamental assumptions are embedded at the roots of our civilization. To ignore that those assumptions are embedded or that there are assumptions at all suggest you can sort of just reason your way back to them. It's self-defeating, especially because even the people who talk about we're going to use reason to get there, they need to explain to me how reason works in a world of scientific materialism. I've said this to to Sam Harris, who I've debated a couple of times on the subject. Sam will talk about the value of reason, but Sam doesn't believe either in free will or in the notion of the soul. So so I'm, I'm just wondering what reason constitutes other than an evolutionarily beneficial firing of neurons. That's not a moral argument for reason. That is a, that's a practical argument for the firing of a particular set of neurons, but the suggestion from an evolutionary perspective is that if violence were more effective, I should probably just do that.
1: It's a very disconcerting that the people who advocate reason don't use it. If there's no free will, then how is there moral accountability? Uh, and, uh, by the way, I, I have told by listeners on when well, I've discussed this on the Ultimate Issues hour that the irony is only those of us who believe in God believe in free will. It's it's
2: dependent yeah, upon that's right. it. So but peop- 100%. people I mean, don't this, know that. This is one of the Yeah, I mean one of the contentions that I make is that people suggest that reason and Judeo Christian values are intention. They are not intention. Judeo Christian values stand behind reason. Because if you don't have Judeo-Christian values, here's where you end up. Let's say that you don't believe in God. You don't believe in free will. You don't believe that you have the capacity to choose. That Effectively, all we are is a cluster of meat and firing neurons that are wandering aimlessly through the universe. We're basically Spinoza's stone that's been thrown, and we think that we have all of these qualities, but we actually don't. right? Well, our fate is our fate. It's all been predetermined. Environment, genetics, all, all of this determines what we are going to do. Well, if that's the case, if, if all of that is the truth, then... How do you hope to build on reason which assumes that I can make different decisions based on being argued into it? How do you how do you how do you build a a, anything resembling meaning on the basis of I am an inanimate object that is animate? Which is essentially the argument.
1: Yeah. Ben, I don't know if you noticed. This is the description of your book on the New York Times bestseller list. The conservative political commentator reflects upon what he considers most impactful to Western civilization. The thing I want to note is that we conservatives are always identified as the conservative. They never identify liberals as the liberal.
2: Well, that that is certainly true. I mean, I don't know if you saw this controversy last week, but when the, the book was first released, and it hit number one on the Times list, and The Economist had done an interview with me, this, this kind of long-form podcast interview, which is perfectly fine, a little bit antagonistic, but that's, that's totally cool. And when they released the interview, their headline was Ben Shapiro, the alt-right sage without the rage. So now I was alt-right. I, I was able to force an apology out of them, but it, it does demonstrate the complete and deliberate misuse of labels by a lot of members of the media who are trying to label me. I mean, They're trying to label people like me, a white, a white supremacist. They're trying to label me in league with the alt-right. I was the leading critic of the alt-right to the point that I now have to have personal security around me at nearly all times. I mean, this is, this is insanity. But those kind of labels, it's, it's easy to – by the way, when they fixed their headline, they changed it to Ben Shapiro, radical conservative. So I wasn't just a regular conservative. I'm now a radical conservative, despite the fact that they couldn't name any specifically radical views that I hold.
1: And again, I just want to tell my listeners, because I always note this, every time, every single time, it has never happened, conservative talk show host Dennis Prager. So I always ask, do they ever preface, if Rachel Maddow shows up, leftist uh, commentator or, or, or moderator or whatever it might be, or host? No, oh, because they are the norm. We must be identified because we are abnormal. That's That's their
2: thinking. That's, that's exactly right. And, and because we're so abnormal, they sort of look at us like Steve Irwin sees a, a weird species in the wild. And then with like Jeff Corwin, they, they, they sort of examine us through this weird lens where, what do these people actually think? It's why in the aftermath of 2016, after Trump won, suddenly the media discovered this strange place called Ohio, where apparently there are these people who live and are sometimes voting Republican. It's, it's this whole world that exists outside the left bubble, where people like me are so strange, people like you are so strange, that they must describe us as the other despite the fact that well over half of Americans identify with the bulk of our views
1: i think that's right and they can never point out if, that's a, what the economist did to you is is disgusting alt right and then radical conservative but they never point out a view that you have that's radical conservative they just make they just make the label there's no there's no substance to the
2: charge well, the, the, when is the last time that they labeled anybody on the radical left? This is a point that I've made to, to friends that I have on the left, which is that you know, they're constantly pointing out that there are people on the right who are gross, and then we excise them. Right? This happens a, on, a, on a fairly regular basis. There will be somebody on the right who does something bad, and then we say that person is no, – we're not associated with that person. That person's ideas are bad and wrong. And then they say, well, this is evidence that the right has a real problem with these people. I always say to my, my friends on the left, when is the last time you exercised anyone – for espousing views that you thought were, were deeply terrible. I mean, other than, than maybe open racism, and even then, when is the last time? I mean, they legitimately refused to excise Ilhan Omar for being a blatant, open anti-Semite. Ralph Northam is still governor of Virginia after they recognized that he was in a yearbook in 1987 wearing blackface. Like, what exactly do you have to do on the left to be excised? The answer is you pretty much cannot be. You can be an open communist on the left. And this—I mean, Bernie Sanders is a leading presidential candidate who in the 1980s was praising bread lines because at the end of them you get bread. I mean, th- th- there is no such thing as too radical for the left. No one will ever be described as a radical leftist inside the mainstream media. But if you are a mainstream conservative, you're a radical conservative because there's no such thing as a mainstream conservative.
1: That's right. So tell us the, the story in San Francisco.
2: So uh, I was, we were talking about free will and, and the strange disconnect between a lot of the people who say that they believe in science and reason and also say that they believe it, that free will doesn't exist. And, and free will, as we were talking about, is dependent on a belief in human beings being made in the image of God with creative and, and willing capacity. So I was, I was doing a debate slash discussion with Sam Harris on his podcast. Sam and I are, are friends. And we were talking about these particular issues. And the best moment of the, of the night was not anything that we said. It was this woman who got up and she said, listen, Sam, I agree with you. There's no such thing as free will. I buy into everything that you say. But I have this son, and I'm trying to teach my son that he ought to act in the right way. So what do I tell him? And Sam kind of stumbled for a second, then he, you know, half jokingly said, "Well, you got to (laughs) lie. You got to tell your son that that he is that you know he has the ability to choose. We all have to act as though we have the ability to choose." And I thought to myself, "Right." But Sam is is a big believer in objective truth and not lying to people. I mean, he's written entire books on this. So how do you hold all these thoughts? at the same time. And why does anything that you do matter if it's all predetermined? You do. You were pointing out that religious people believe most deeply in free will. And it's funny, because I think there are all these misconceptions about what religious people actually believe by people who are secular. And you know, I hate to say that you sort of have to live as a religious person in order to understand religious people. I don't think that's totally true, but I do think that you have to have at least a passing familiarity. The, the vision of religious people, people who believe in Judeo-Christian systems, seems to be among secular people that we've never actually thought about our beliefs, that they are patently ridiculous on their face, but we've never actually thought about the roots of our beliefs, or that we believe that God determines every step that we take and that we don't have free will um, or that God or, or that God somehow dominates our life to the point where we can't have independent thought and I just think to myself, how is any of that true like that' the it's all a caricature history, not only were religious but forcibly rebut a lot of those Right. Religions.
1: All right, let me remind everybody, Ben Shapiro's bestseller, r- rightly so. It's, it's actually heartening that it is the right side of history. Ben, keep up the work. You're doing good stuff.
2: Hey, thanks so much. I
1: appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy.